Okay, let's go ahead and get started. Welcome to the 18th session of the Music Tech, San Francisco Music Tech Conference. It's great to be here. Um, this is the future of music licensing panel discussion. What we're going to do this morning, uh, oh, by the way, my name is Jim King. I'm the uh, CEO of Core Rights, a new startup. For the last five or six years, I was the Senior Vice President of Business Operations and Technology for Broadcast Music Incorporated. <clears throat> this company started um, at the end of last year. We'll talk more about that later. Uh, I'm pleased to have with me on the panel Annie Lynn from Louder, uh, Jeff King, COO from SoCan, uh, Aaron Bucarelli from Soundster, and Adrian Perry from Covington, Burling. So very glad to have these participants. They represent different aspects of the future of music licensing. So what I'm going to do, we're going to start first with a quick intro from each about what music licensing, the future of music licensing means to them, who they are. And then we're going to have a few questions from up, uh, I've got a few questions to get us started and then we'll open it up to the floor. So why don't we start to my left, Jeff. Oh, hi everybody, it's, uh, thanks for coming to an early session after it was probably a long night uh, the night before. I'm Jeff King, I'm SoCan COO. Um, and the token Canadian on the panel here, I notice. Um, uh, just to let you know, uh, if things go haywire in November 8th, we will be building a wall. Uh. But, uh, but you, uh, you folks are all welcome because you're friends of the industry. And uh, uh, so just make note of my contact info and uh, I'll put a good word in. Oh, and Jeff, by the way, we are recording the session just to let you know. I, 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 I appreciate that. We are. Yeah. So. Yeah. Now, for the, uh, the, the Canadian authorities watching this, I love my country deeply. For, uh, for the NSA who are watching it, my name is Jim King, and I am the uh, CEO of Corex. Anyways, uh, um, uh, anyways uh, we're honored to be here. Uh, uh, we see the world changing dramatically, and uh, where the most of the action around the, uh, the, the evolution is really happening in the two extremes of the technology. One being, the, uh, the, uh, obviously, the streaming world and new options and new ways for these things to develop and be built. And then at the other end of the technology spectrum, uh, general licensing, bars and restaurants where, where music licensing really started. And it's, I find it fascinating that those are, are the two areas where the acceleration of change is happening the most dramatically. And we've got a number of things that we're working on to address these elements, and I'm looking forward to talking to you about some of these things uh, a little bit later on today. All right. Adrian. Um, hello. My name is Adrian Perry. I'm a, a special counsel at Covington and Burling. Uh, I'm in the tech and IP transactions group, uh, so I do a variety of deals ranging from music licensing to data collaborations, tech and software development deals, all that sort of stuff. Um, my background is as a musician. Um, I have a music reports check for one cent that's displayed proudly in my office as a reminder yeah. of why I'm a lawyer. Um, <laughs> but. Um, yeah, so, uh, but I spent years on the road touring. I come from a music family. I owe a lot to the music industry. Um, I also worked in A&R at major labels. So my goal as an attorney is to try, at least I would like to think, is to bring people together to make deals in this ever-changing landscape. Um, obviously, data is a big part of what's going on now in music licensing. I've seen it in transactions where data is being leveraged uh, as a bargaining chip. Um, which is something that you know I think is important to think about. Um, you have to create new assets uh, in the industry, and I think that uh, that's a big, big part of you know thinking about licensing broadly. Um, you have to consider other ways to bring value to deals, and um, 
So that's something I've been sort of focused on, is learning on different ways to leverage data in the licensing landscape and uh, trying to bring people together, obviously, in what has become a pretty contentious space. So. Thank you, Adrian. Annie. Great. Um, hi, uh, my name is Annie Lin. Uh, I am general counsel with Louder. And 12 hours ago, I was totally covered in mud at Treasure Island Music Festival. And now I'm here this morning. And so that is, that feels rock and roll. That feels very rock and roll. <laughs> um, so I work with Louder. Uh, Louder is a company that some people have referred to as big data for music rights. Uh, we are a platform that helps uh, companies as well as other music users uh, match uh, uh, match sound recordings to compositions, identify uh, rights holders, and pay out royalties to the people that should receive the royalties on the publishing side. Um, because of the nature of our platform, uh, I work on a variety of deals from data partnerships, publisher deals, um, to you know technical integrations, uh, business deals, and um, my background, uh, I've, I've been working in rights for the last decade. Um, I've worked in music supervision, I've worked as the licensing director for The Orchard, um, and I also used to be a full-time musician touring uh, all over the country, playing guitar in a, a variety of bars, uh, which hopefully were paying public performance royalties. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I'm looking forward to, um, to speaking with you guys today. Hi, I'm Aaron Bucciarelli Teager. I'm the founder and CEO of Soundster. Uh, you may recognize me, I was here last year. We used to be called Music Play Analytics. Uh, a lot of changes can happen in a startup over uh, the course of a year. So um, we leverage Grace Notes automatic content recognition technology to identify the music performed and broadcast in real world establishments. Uh, the idea behind this is that we can create transparency on this real world music use for both the venue or the business that's licensing music, uh, enable them to have a negotiation with the rights organization so they can pay a fair license fee, and then at the same time have the data that can be used by the rights organizations to ensure the songwriters get paid more accurately and fairly. Um, I come at this, I used to be a professional musician myself, um, and I re realized that I was missing out on a lot of general license royalties, and nobody was trying to leverage music recognition technology to solve that problem, so I sought out, sought out on that journey. Great. Well, thank you, Aaron and, and Annie and Adrian and Jeff. Glad to have you here with us today. You represent, again, uh, leaders and thinkers about the future of music licensing. Just to quickly introduce myself, uh, I'm the CEO of Core Rights. Core Rights is launching today. We've been under stealth uh, development for the last eight months. Uh, our company is focused on creating a one-stop shop marketplace for all music rights within countries. So I'm proud to announce also our first country digital marketplace for venues, um, uh, bars, restaurants, et cetera, to generally license the music rights they need, and that is in the country of Canada, working directly with SOCAN and ReSound. SOCAN, um, the largest uh, membership organization in Canada, uh, um, representing millions of uh, rights holders, and ReSound uh, for, for performing rights, and ReSound, which has the neighboring rights for, for uh, performance licenses and, uh, and other. Uh, so we're thrilled to have ReSound and, and, and SoCan as our partners to build this first digital marketplace, uh, being a one-stop shop for a bar or restaurant owner to obtain their license through a digital means, meaning a, 
an electronic approach versus having lots of people call and bother them and, and not knowing what they're supposed to do. It's an education tool. I think for the long, and we're going to talk about this in the panel, for the longest time we have focused on the on this servicing the, uh, the creators of music, the rights holders, and that is definitely the thing to do. But we also need to take um, into consideration the needs and the value and the understanding of a value equation for the people that are listening to music or wanting music within their, uh, within their businesses. What does it mean to them and what can we do to bring more value? So we're creating this digital marketplace where uh, rights holders, venue owners, and even the suppliers of music come together in one place. And we're also uh, partnered with Irving Azoff's General Music Rights Organization. Uh, we're pretty excited about that. It's our first PRO in the United States. They're helping us to build out our platform, and uh, it's pretty exciting. We also have a strategic relationship with Soundster, who represents a key part of the supply chain for music licensing. And so you can see there is obviously a theme here. We have uh, people that are thinking about that, that future music licensing supply chain, which is, if you, if you think about Airbnb and Uber, et cetera, it's, it's a digital marketplace. How can we reach people deep penetration into markets to make sure that rights holders are getting the value they need from and the value they should have from their music rights. So we're excited to be here, um, uh, core rights, um, the rest of the panel, so let's get to it. Um, it's interesting, in the, uh, the session upstairs, uh, <clears throat> maybe some of you were, were hoping to listen to Benji and talk about blockchain because there's a lot of exciting excitement going on around new technologies, not only blockchain, but machine learning, the use of AI, large-scale data and analytics. Uh, my background is uh, CIO or CTO of, of a number of Fortune uh, uh, 200 companies uh, and Microsoft. And so I came to BMI, and that was what we did at BMI. I had the honor of working there to create more, more uh, value around data. And then with SOCAN and others, we created uh, a vision of the future of administering information and administering rights. And so that's how Core Rights was born. So let's talk a little bit about that. Let's each, maybe each of you, talk about what you think, and since this is a music tech conference with the emphasis on tech, um, what do you think the new technologies mean to the future of music licensing? And uh, please, Jeff, let's start with you. Sure. I, I think that uh, there's a combination of things that, uh, that tech really brings to the story. Uh, one is uh, the, the, uh, the T word, transparency, obviously. But to me, transparency without accountability uh, means nothing. It's just a word. So you have to have ways to hold people accountable around streams and downloads or uh, different distributions or different uses, uh, ranging from uh, uh, bars and restaurants, as, uh, as the folks pointed out, but also the world's largest DSPs. And so I see technology as being a way to help to pull that together and to provide a level of clarity uh, for the, uh, the rights holder community that you see with your uh, visa bill and your uh, and your banking uh, uh, ATM card. You take money out in Sydney and Australia, and you log in your account. Fifteen minutes later, it's out, and uh, the exchange rates there and all the rest of it. We can do the same types of things, and the future is going to belong to companies that engage and and work on this level of technology and really adapt the fintech world for a rights tech space. And that's what we're aiming to do. Uh, SOCAN, working with the folks here on the, on the panel, along with a few others, we're going deep into machine learning and working with Watson and uh, working on different things with Benji around blockchain. Blockchain's not the total answer to me. It's part of the answer. It's a UPC code with a history attached, who owned the Coke can at each stage. That could be of tremendous value in, in pulling apart areas, especially where there's a lot of cloudiness. And that's the, uh, the bright light that uh, we're going to shine on this stuff. All right, great, thanks. Adrian? 
Um, I, mean, I agree. I mean, I think that technology can be a tool, but ultimately I think at the core you really have to get the data right in the first place. Um, you know, this is something I've been really focused on sort of particularly the last year just talking to people, what they're doing in the industry um, and what, the, what their feelings on blockchain and how to solve this transparency issue. And, you know, it starts really in the, you know, the recording studio and getting people to figure out who owns what in the first place because you can have the best blockchain uh, interface in the world and have something that really works well, but if you're not getting the right data in there, it's not going to solve getting the money to the right people in the first place. Um, but I'm generally, I, I think technology is a, a very powerful tool, and I think blockchain is something that, you know, I, I'm excited about it. I think it's a great conversation that is happening because finally people are coming to grips with the fact that it's too hard to license music. People, the wrong people are getting paid. Um, I mean, these are generalities, but you know, it starts with having the conversation first, um, which is a good thing. But um, but I think that's something that people have to remember is you know, yeah, we've got to develop the right technology, but you also have to kind of change the culture too, and make sure you're getting the right data inputs in the first place. Um, and the other sort of gloss I'll I'll put on it is, um, you know, all these different data elements that are being collected can be used to create new value. Um, I mean, that was something that we were talking about, um, Aaron, yesterday, um, which maybe you should talk about because it was really something you brought up. But um, matching, you know, even like if you're sitting in a bar and, you know, you can match up, you know, the plays of, you know, different you know, artists compared to, like, sales that are happening at the time. I mean, there, there are so many different ways to leverage data to create value in these deals. Um, and, and that's something that technology will continue to foster. And, and ultimately, it's going to bring more money into the industry, which is what we want. Um, at least that's what I want uh, as someone that's sort of, you know, relied on the music industry to, you know, get through college. And then, you know, now as someone who wants to work to help bring deals together. So, uh, so that's sort of my little bit on it. I think that when you're talking about uh, music licensing at great scale, where it's no longer... A single song, double song, dozen songs type situation, as is frequently the case with many of the new technologies that we're embracing, um, streaming being the least of them. Um, it's a matter, uh, the licensing becomes a matter of transaction cost, right? Like, you want to license one song, there's going to be a certain transaction of cost associated with that, with identifying the rights holder, with reporting. Um, but if you multiply that by three million or four million, um, that's going to be uh, a really high burden. And, um, you know, to date, I think because of uh, the disparate uh, levels of technology embraced by people across the industry and the fact that it's kind of an uneven playing field when it comes to data, data organization, um, access to data technologies, and just the ability to even just track the assets that you have, because it's so uneven, um, you have... Um, you have a fundamentally uh, broken system where it's, um, you may have the best technology in the world, um, but if other rights holders don't have that technology and you're not able to work with the data because the data is in a variety of formats and none of them are the same and can talk to each other, um, that just adds yet more transaction costs to, um, to the entire operations process. So I think that as a result of this, um, there has been a tension between, you know, rights holders and, um, you know, people that perhaps, you know, create technologies um, to administer rights. Um, it goes back to what 
Jeff mentioned earlier, which was um, the point of accountability, right? Um, if you feel like partners are not necessarily being accountable, you might be a little bit less uh, uh, likely to uh, open up access to your data, or you might there might be a sort of a slow courting process to be able to um, uh, to work with a to work with a partner. So I think that the future of the future future of music licensing. I feel like a song from the rapper Future should play when I say that. Um, <laughs> I think the future of music technology really lies in techno uh, technology that reduces these transaction costs. Um, and, uh, you know, players in the space, you know, that really work closely with the publishing community to create trust, you know, uh, to show accountability and... Um, and to adopt technologies, um, you know, like machine learning, um, you know, the ability to work with a variety of formats, Louder does these things, um, these kinds of things, um, adopting these technologies to improve um, tracking and improve accountability. Uh, so with Soundster, we're not trying to solve all of the world's music industry problems. We're, we're taking a, a, um, a much more focused approach. We're just focusing in on these real-world performances. So th this is typically called general licensing. And four times more money gets collected every single year for songwriters than all digital services combined. Yet nobody's ever talking about general licensing. So we're trying to shift the focus and figure out where that money is coming from, who it's actually supposed to go to. Uh, we think we can leverage music recognition technology to do a better job, uh, or at least enhance what the performing rights organizations are currently doing. Uh, just so everyone knows, when a business plays a song and they pay a license for that song, typically, uh, I don't want to paint with a, a broad brush here, but most of the time, they rely on radio uh, data to determine who gets that money. So the music played on the radio determines who gets paid from a, a business's performance, and that just seems fundamentally wrong to me, and we actually did some studies where we found out that only 19% of the music played in a business is also played on the radio. So 81% of the songs you hear when you walk into a bar, those the songwriters aren't getting compensated. So um, that's something that I, I really want to help address and fix, and, and I think we can utilize recognition tech to do that, uh, create that transparency. Um, I think it will usher in kind of a, a new licensing model. Um, and I hope that's one that, that the performing rights organizations will adopt. And, and really, it's it's more along the lines of... They love that point. Uh, yeah. 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 Yeah, 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 yeah. We're streaming. Sorry. We're streaming. Yeah. Yeah. I, I hope the U.S. rights organizations will, will adopt that approach. Um, Thank you. Yeah. But I, I kind of see it like uh, cable cord cutting. You know, people now have the capabilities of just getting the services that they actually want. Um, and with the transparency uh, created by the data that we're capturing, uh, a business now has the opportunity to just pay for the music that they're actually using. So uh, I think that's pretty exciting. Um, it's a, a fair way to do business, both for the business themselves and on the back end, it's fair for the songwriters because they'll actually get compensated because we know what songs were actually played. Yes, thanks. Actually, we're, we had a couple themes, but I think I want to stay with this one and then open it up for some questions. But quickly before I do that, there were some dynamics discussed here. Using machine learning, uh, using large-scale data analytics, blockchain, lots of different uh, uh, recognition technology. There's lots of technologies we can deploy, but there's some fundamental issues that we need to understand. As Aaron said, 
the music that is being performed in venues is very difficult to understand and track by the, the rights organizations. And they use different, I, I ran the group that did this at BMI, uh, they use different approaches to try to pay the rights holders for that music, that music performance. Um, so the that's one dynamic. Another dynamic is even though a lot of that music isn't directly going to the owners of the music that is being played for various fundamental reasons, we also don't have penetration into the market. In Canada, for example, um, uh, or in the U.S. and in other countries, not obviously not all venues are being licensed. In fact, uh, it, in the U.S., it may only be one half or one third, one quarter to one third of venues are actually paying licenses for music. It's again because it's very difficult to find out. Uh, this bar went out of business last week, and another bar pops up. Uh, we, we what we're trying to do with core rights and with the with. Uh, our, our partners is using technology to find where music is being played in a much more efficient way and then use the other technologies to understand what's being performed and then how it is distributed to the, the proper rights holders. Uh, that is the vision for this, this uh, uh, general licensing marketplace that we're creating. Hey, so, Jim, uh, I'm, yes. I'm going to jump in, sorry. Uh, just to quantify the the percentage that you get you gave there, uh, or the, the fraction you gave there, so there's only about 120 thousand-ish establishments that are paying these direct licenses to the PROs right now. And if you, you assume that that's only a, a third of the market penetration, then there's uh, several hundred thousand unlicensed businesses out there. So if you can provide them a fair license and get them into the system, then that's more money for everyone. And we believe the same thing exists in, in all, or, uh, all countries. There are a few countries that do really well at this um, because they have more staff or they have various other rules that allow them to go license those establishments maybe differently than we do uh, in North America or other countries. So our goal is to bring uh, transparency and new business processes and new technology to bear on this. So before we move off on this theme, because we're going to talk about maybe the DOJ in a second, um, are there any questions on the technology side of the future of music licensing? Yes, uh, we do have a mic. We are recording this, so we're going to ask you to up here in front. I speak really loud. I know, but they, they okay. want, still want to record you for the future. <laughs> My name is Keith Bernstein. There we go. Can you hear me now? I think you can hear me. We can hear you. We can hear you. Okay. Um, my question is, uh, it seems like the discussion's been around performance rights for the most part. So my question is uh, streaming and mechanicals. You know, what your thoughts are on that since, you know, that seems to be a big problem area with respect to licensing. So if you have any thoughts mm -hmm. on how to improve the licensing related to streaming. Um, my, my thoughts actually were directly in that space because com my company, Louder, um, uh, our platform uh, <laughs> deals with mechanical licensing, uh, among other things. And um, I, I, I think it's very much a problem of scale and to be able to deal with scale, I think um, you need to be able to have the technology needed to match um, and to identify rights holders and to secure licenses on a massive, massive scale. And so it's either that or it's a settlement model, right, where you, you cut it up based on market share and you divvy it up and you come up with some sort of like percentage rate or, you know, royalty structure that all of the major players can agree with, but it's either, I, I, I see it as either that or, you know, having the technology to identify. And I think that that is really where some exciting things 
um, will come in the future of music licensing. Just, just as a follow-up, do, do you see it as more compulsory or direct licensing? Well, it's funny that you should say that because I actually that have a South by Southwest panel that's actually directly on that, directly on that topic. Uh, 2017. Plug it. <laughs> Plug it. Um, but um, I mean, currently it's compulsory, right? Um, there, you know, there's direct licenses, and then there are compulsory licenses. If you can't get a direct license, you know, there's a sort of a process that you go through, um, and you prioritize accordingly based on your resources. Um, that's how it is right now. As to how it will be in the future, I think that's the subject of another panel. <laughs> Jeff. Yeah. If uh, if I may, uh, Keith, there's a, n a number of different elements. Part of it is the technology, but another part of it is the data, and that's one of the big holes that's been happening. And earlier this year, SOCAN acquired MediaNet and Audium to, with the full mindset, not only of building our database, but in get involved with other rights in other countries as part of our vision to build a, a global operating platform. Not global licensing, because that's a lot harder and more utopian than you think, but certainly large regional, the Americas, Europe, that type of thing, for mechanical and performing rights. Now, the, uh, uh, with the acquisition of MediaNet, we got 56 million sound recordings, all with uh, ISRCs, all fingerprinted. That's a huge treasure trove of data that provides a huge opportunity to go take a look at different elements. And the famous class action lawsuits uh, from uh, late last year and early this year, class action lawsuits have a dirty name and they're a scary tool, but guess what? They focus the mind, and the, we're seeing that DSPs are very eager to solve these problems now because they're realizing there's tremendous liability issues accumulating rapidly. So we're starting to find more willing marketplace as opposed to before it was catch me if you can, and uh, I'm going to rely on NOIs and different things like that. I think it's moving quickly. I think it will move to a transactional uh, type place, uh, uh, way to, uh, to manage these things, um, but it's going, to be a, uh, it's going to be an iterative approach. Uh, and I think uh, the idea of a unitary license uh, covering the uh, different gamuts is probably where it's going to end up. So the, the rights will be bundled to as, the large extent as possible to get more economies of scale and to have a faster transaction and more transparency. We're seeing parts of that already in some parts of the world where SOCAN is providing some services to different people exactly along those lines, and it's working quite well. And we're really hoping to that our announcement today with core rights is the beginning of a, a whole new era in Canada and in North America to start moving towards that way. And, uh, and we want to start conversations around the reproduction rights uh, in addition to Audium on that front. And, and I, th I think the, the specifically your question about compulsory versus direct, people want to behave and act uh, the way that best fits their business model. So a digital marketplace that represents the music industry needs to have a representation of today's world of compulsory licenses, but also to account for there are artists and there are, are catalogs that are not represented by the PROs or they're not represented by uh, rights holders. How can they join a marketplace to license their material? We're seeing more and more people independently bring their material to the market. What we want to do is make sure that there's actually a join of those two as we go forward in the future. So we represent both business models. It's a very interesting space. You know, we have geographical considerations as well because, you know, of course, I know you're based in Los Angeles where we work in the United States and the, the, the copyright market in the United States is very much, it's a free market model as are many things in this country. And so, you know, there may not be like a governmental sync license. There may not be, you know, a governmental copyright office that processes everything. Um, you know, it may not be like a governmental, there is not a governmentally uh, designated um, 
rights organization to deal with these things, as of yet at least, beyond what the Copyright Office does with NOIs. And so um, that's the system in which we currently play. Um, uh, of course, obviously, with future legislation, that could change, but it's, it's a little bit different, I think, from other countries that have um, a little bit more government oversight um, and maybe less of a um, sort of capitalist free market. Well, there's also market. geographies involved, too. If you look at... Yeah. The, the, the countries that may be doing the best at this are relatively constrained countries, so let's say Germany or mm. the UK, but if you look at large-scale yeah. geographic India, Australia, Canada, United States, Brazil, uh, it's hard for them in their current more, more human-based models to license everyone, so we need digital solutions. Are, is there another question on this topic of technology in the future of music licensing? Yes, and back. Oh. Right. Sorry. Oh. Oh. Uh, yeah. Hi. Good morning. I just had a quick question about um, on the technology side. It seems like there's lots of folks, such as yourselves, trying to solve this problem. How receptive have you found the PROs themselves in terms of their sense of urgency trying to solve the problem with respect to rights? <clears throat> Excuse me. Because my own experience with the PROs is it doesn't give, it doesn't feel like they really have any sense of urgency in terms of addressing this issue. We do have with us one uh, Canadian PRO, which can address uh, that here. But I'm sorry, I was talking about U.S. Canada, not nah, yeah. <laughs> but but I think that they represent a view of the future. So Jeff can maybe point on that or touch on that, and then we'll answer your question as well for the U.S. Uh, yeah, I think uh, uh, my I'll go first as a PRO person, I guess, and the uh, um, uh, we like to think that we're very very forward looking on these things, and we've done a lot of things around. Uh, uh, everything from machine learning to uh, operational data stores to handle trillions of uh, bits of data. Um, I'm overwhelmingly disappointed with the PRO community and their uh, responsiveness to these topics and issues, uh, but I think that's in turn creating a huge opportunity for SOCAN and similar-minded uh, organizations, and there are a few that are quite progressive. Uh, for the U.S. Uh, PROs, uh, who are important trading partners for us, uh, they've been heavily distracted by the DOJ uh, uh, activities. Uh, by the way, take this as uh, with a grain of salt, maybe, but as a, uh, an, a keen and uh, financially interested observer in the U.S. marketplace, I find this market to be further away from a free market than almost anyone on, any one on the planet. Uh, it's wrapped in, uh, in a, a star-spangled banner as being this amazing thing, but there's consent decrees and restrictions on development of business uh, that you would never see in Canada or even Russia. So I find that... Uh, <laughs> I'm just saying, huh? <laughs> hey, they, they want excitement, so here we go. There we go. <laughs> uh, but, uh, the, um, uh, but no, the reality is it's, uh, it's masked as a free market, but it's not. You know, uh, ASCAP and BMI do not have the ability to say no. They don't have the ability to negotiate rates in a, in a way that SOCAN can, or PRS, or SESAM, or GAMA can. But that's going to start to change, you know. Uh, frankly, my two cents, uh, I'm loaded up with lawyers here and all the rest of it. I think the consent decrees are borderline unconstitutional. It's a restraint of trade. Uh, and uh, when you have uh, relatively small companies like ASCAP and BMI negotiating with the two most valuable companies in the history of the world, I don't know the balance of power really resides with a couple hundred thousand songwriters. Now, uh, that has been a major focus for the large US PROs and has been part of the reason why they've been somewhat paralyzed, I think, on dealing with the other things. But I know they're keenly concerned about these different elements, and SOCAN is very much open for business to work with them to help solve these problems, and even if it means that we do different things in a much different way, uh, leveraging a SOCAN relationship or the fact that we don't have a consent decree or whatever way. We're very open to have different ways to do it. 
I can I know the frustration. I sense the frustration of the inactivity in the U.S. marketplace, but it's going to start to come. So uh, I, I think the voting point will be here before we know it. And again, the class actions are going to force a lot of other people to to the table that uh, for uh, you know half a decade have said nothing. Adrian, uh, I think the constitutional law panel is down the road. <laughs> if you want to check that out. Um, so I guess my my experience is I, you know I think the PROs are are kind of like fighting a two front war a little bit. I mean they're they're concerned about trying to hold on to what they've gotten and also dealing with the sort of sort of future that is coming. Um, but uh, I, I guess the, the short answer to your question is it, there's a range. You know, some folks are a little more attuned to these data issues trying to kind of attack the problem. Other folks, you know, are just kind of taking a wait-and-see approach. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's a touchy subject because, you know, there might not always be an interest in transparency because, the, the, again, these guys, I think, are fighting a lot of different battles. They're trying to retain their artists. There are, you know, competitors coming on, like like GMR that was referenced before. Um, they're trying to get smarter about, you know, so about retaining their artists, getting new ones, and then fighting the sort of government uh, issues. Um, so I think that distracted is a good way to to, to describe them, um, and it's it's understandable, right? It's a lot to kind of juggle at the same time. So you know that that my experience, at least in in dealing with uh, PROs, which um, you know, it, it is just that, that they're, they're kind of fighting multiple battles at once and you can only expect so much, you know, at, when that's the situation. So I, I actually experienced this firsthand. So um, GMR has stated they'll accept our data, which is awesome. Um, we're cur currently doing a pilot with SOCAN, but when it comes to the other U.S. performing rights organizations, our conversations with them kind of slowed to a crawl once all of this nonsense with the DOJ came about. You know, they were certainly entertaining us and, and having conversations with us, and, and I think they're still interested in utilizing this data, but again, they're, they're fighting a, a multifaceted war, and it's just tough for them right now. <laughs> and there's definitely, like, you know, a, a very strong possessiveness around the data, right? It's um, Sometimes, you know, yes, transparency is good, but, you know, if the only thing that you have as a negotiating chip is, you know, the, the information which would actually make things more efficient and more transparent, sometimes you may hold on to that or release it selectively or maybe not in a mach machine-readable format because, you know, there's reasons. And we're seeing, uh, again, SOCAN and ReSound and the Canadian market are the two organizations that are working for the future of music licensing. And GMR has made a commitment to do the same thing in the United States. I believe CSAC, uh, BMI, and ASCAP all want to work towards this. Um, and you have heard the basic theme here is that they're, they're muddied in, a, in a, a number of things. But uh, our goal as a company, as well as uh, partners up here, is to work with them uh, to go forward in the future. Another technology question. Yes, now we had the one back here. Yeah, so, um, Hold on. Oh, that, that. <laughs> Sorry. Thank you. Yeah, hi. So as you probably know, there's a lot of research going on on machine learning generated music. What they do is they analyze thousands of tracks in a particular uh, genre, and then they generate the score, complete score. Sony, I think, released two tracks, uh, analyzing yes. thousands of uh, tracks they have. What do you think or what, what are your thoughts about the licensing model for music that is brand new music that these machine learning systems generate that is based on learning you know, tracks, thousands of tracks, already existing tracks. Thank you. Uh, good question. I'll, I'll pass it to the group here in a second. Um, 
uh, we're working very closely with IBM. We're an IBM business partner with Watson, and Watson was one of the uh, t companies that did what you said, um, and there are others. Um, from a software standpoint, the notion of, of mimicking human behavior, which is what artists do as well, they, they listen to others, they think about what others are doing, and then they, uh, that influences their, their thinking, potentially. Um, in the software world, when a technology creates something, typically that, that creation is a piece of intellectual property owned by the technology company. So if your question was, is there some relationship or ownership to the thousand different songs that that technology listened to? That's a good question, and, and I would turn it over to now to Adrian and Annie potentially to have some thoughts on that. But from a software or technology standpoint, typically it's the technology owner that would retain the IP for that. Yeah. But? I mean, like, if your question is whether, um, okay, I just want to re-summarize your question to make sure I'm understanding it. Um, you're asking whether a piece of technology that draws from a pre-existing pool of music and analyzes it and then generates using machine learning or otherwise um, music that's based on that music, you're asking who owns that music. And if that is your question, then my answer is, um, you know, you, you may have a copyright. <laughs> you may have a copyright infringement issue because of course when you have, if it, if it was not a machine, if it was a person, you know, person was exposed to a particular piece of music and copied it, that that would be a problem. And so I, I don't I, I think don't his think point is that they're not copying it. They're actually They're listening. not copying. They're analyzing thousands of tracks uh -huh. and generating brand new music. So it's like saying a musician listens to thousands of other tracks and yeah. comes up with new music. It, it depends on, it depends on, it's really, it's a fine line, right? I mean, like, I used to work in sync licensing as a music supervisor, and we would always put out these song briefs, and then people would come back to us and say, hey, I don't have a song like that, but let me tell you, I got a composer that can write something exactly like that. Let me just turn that around. You would all say, no, because then I would expose my client to, like, copyright infringement because you just like listened to the temp track and then copied it. So, but then it's a machine on scale, so it's, I, I don't know, it's, it's yeah. case by well, case Well, that's basis. the creative process. It's yeah. taking in your influences and then yeah. trying to recreate that in some slightly different fashion. In a post-Marvin Gaye and, and, world, yeah, and just, you, it's yeah, just a slippery slope, right? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, you know, you're, you're just hoping that you don't, your, your influences don't bleed too far into that creative process and, and all of a sudden yeah. you're slap with a copyright infringement lawsuit. So yeah, that'll be interesting when uh, a machine learning created song <laughs> gets, gets slapped with a copyright infringement suit. So Adrian, any thoughts? Or? Yeah, I, I can't wait for that case. Um, <laughs> you know, when, it's like when the, the monkey the, photograph case. It's like, yeah, the machine, you know, the yeah. machines, you know, what's the machine's image yeah. gonna be for the record label? What are they gonna do when they get slapped with that suit? Um, yeah, I, I, I agree with what's been said. I mean, you just have to evaluate the way you would any other copyright case, you know, and see if, uh, you know, if it infringes the song and you go through largely the same process, though I, I do know there's a lot of folks that are developing, I met someone last night developing technology to have more of a objective analysis of what is copyright infringement, which is a whole other um, sort of Pandora's box to open. But, um, you know, absent anything else, I mean, that, that's sort of the situation you're dealing with. You just look at the song and see if it's an infringing work. doesn't matter if it was created by a person or a machine. Okay. Another question on technology up front. Coming. Uh, just following on that, and I, I wrote an article giving myself a plug in Atlantic called "When Robots Write um, Songs." I and saw that. Yes. oh, okay. Yes. And they already sort of do. You. 
And Ray Kurzweil uh, had a the futurist and created the uh, synthesizer had an interesting quote about who, in the case of a robot or an algorithm creating a song, say in the style of, of Paul McCartney with a little Bob Dylan thrown in and Ravel or something like that. You give an algorithm to the computer. Who owns the copyright? Is it the one who created the algorithm? Is it McCartney or a combination of those people? Is it the machine itself? Uh, is it, you know, so there are a lot of interesting issues and like you say, I'm interested in seeing that case and. So he didn't answer it. He, he didn't, he just put the question out and, and you know, there may also be some trademark issues as well with when you're talking with, in a post Marvin Gaye world as well, like if, if Marvin Gaye stands, doesn't stand on appeal, then, you know, it's not a copyright infringement case as much as a sound alike type of, of a case with regard to whether a song created by a computer sounds like in the style of something else. But if Marvin Gaye stands, maybe it's a copyright infringement case. So the law is interesting, isn't it? Yes. On, yes. The, on the machine learning point, though, as it pertains to licensing, I think that machine learning is actually super important in the world of licensing because especially in the world of publishing licensing, because a lot of times it comes down to who owns the rights. And when you have a zillion songs called intro by various artists, outro, that's another good one, um, things like that, and you need to figure out, there's, you need to look at all this other ancillary data to figure out exactly who various artists is and what track intro is and how it differs from the other track, many other tracks called intro. Um, that is historically something that has required the attention of a very patient music research team. Um, but today, um, you know, there's lots of companies, um, self-plug, louder included, that are building technologies that have machines um, parse that out and figure it out. So it's, it's, it's a very exciting space. Machine learning, I know Jeff mentioned that earlier, it's, is, uh, is a trend to watch, so to speak. Let's move to the uh, the next theme of interest, which uh, Jeff nicely brought up, which is how government activities impact the future of licensing, not only, well, not necessarily from a technology standpoint, but more from a, a um, process standpoint. How can we license the music? Uh, for example, uh, if we create a single digital marketplace where owners of music come together and in that marketplace, those agents represent them, and then you have people that want to license music, and you have digital agents that represent them. Those agents are coming together to obtain value for music in their businesses, let's say in general licensing, and you have multiple PROs, or you have individuals that actually own three songs that are critical because uh, uh, all the uh, country bars want to play them. Um, there, there will be issues around I won't throw the word collusion out there, but I just did. The idea of how pricing in a marketplace happens, how are prices set, um, that's, that's an example in the future. Um, so, and that's way in the future, not, not current. But Jeff or any, uh, Adrian, anyone uh, want to talk about the impact of government legislation uh, or impact or meddling, as you might have said, Jeff, uh, have on the future of mus uh, music licensing? I mean, um, I'll start off with this one. Uh, it's a real fun one. Um, I think that, um, the, so there, there's a lot of sort of, um, you know, the music industry is very insular. So anytime the government kind of steps in, you've always got folks saying, well, well these guys don't know anything about our business. Like, get out of here. You don't understand. And, and I, under, I understand that thinking. But on the other side of it, 
sometimes it's good to, and not necessarily to have the government, but just having an objective outsider take a look at what's going on and say, hey guys, this is crazy. Um, this is way too difficult. And so I can understand the sort of, you know, just taking a step back, like this whole, you know, there's all these arguments about 100% licensing and, you know, it's obviously like an extremely hot button topic right now, but just taking a step back, I mean, it is absolutely too difficult right now for users to get licenses, which hurts both sides of the equation. So, I, I, you know, to the extent the government can, you know, can take a role in helping solve these issues, and obviously there are a lot of people lobbying on both sides, I mean, I, I don't think it's just per se a bad thing, but when you take a look at sort of the difficulty and the complexity of the licensing schemes as they exist, I don't think it's crazy to sit back and say, look, maybe it's not a bad idea to have some outsiders take an objective view and say, look, this is what's going on, and at least kicking up the dirt and inspiring discussion, which has already started. So, I think in a practical sense, you're talking about these recent changes or no changes from the DOJ on the consent decree. So the consent decrees are, are the documents that basically govern how ASCAP and BMI, the two largest rights organizations in the U.S., can operate. Um, now, one of the the major points that people, I guess, seems to be glossed over in the wake of 100% licensing is the issue of uh, the DOJ saying a publisher can't partially withdraw. So if you're going to withdraw your, your digital rights, then you have to withdraw all of your rights. Um, and so what's that... What, what does that do for a music licensee? Well, um, in the case of general licensing and, and the real world businesses that have to license music, that could theoretically mean now they have to have a license from ASCAP, BMI, CSAC, and GMR, and then potentially tomorrow, Sony, Universal, Warner, and on and on and on. And that's a scary prospect for a lot of these establishments. So, you know, from my perspective, I can tell them who, who those songs are licensed to, so it, it, it kind of works out. But um, I think it's important to always take these big, high-level concepts around uh, government oversight uh, and, and distill them down to what does it mean for the licensee and the creators, because that doesn't get talked about a lot. I think it's a matter of fragmentation versus not, right. too. Any questions on this topic? Uh, or I know we were talking about U.S. No, and you already good. said which. Yeah, yeah, no, <laughs> um, any questions on the role of of government from the standpoint of process and engagement in the future of music licensing? Question up front. Is it you? No. Thank you. Hi, uh, my name is David Ring, and. Uh, it's been a really great panel so far. This um, extrapolating from the start to the to where we are now on the panel discussion, um, this uh, this evolution is naturally going to mean an increase in rates. Uh, that I, could, I guess that's how I feel. I don't. Maybe everybody could would nod their heads because, of course, if you get rid of the DOJ consent decrees or they're modified plus having more efficient licensing, all the stuff that you, know, you guys have talked about. It's all fantastic, actually, for both sides of the equation. Mm -hmm. There is one sticky wicket to come, which is how much it costs a business yes. and how poor the investing uh, landscape is for any music-related businesses from, let's say, the Valley 
uh, or anywhere else, private equity included, because of the cost of licensing leaving no margin for the businesses to actually succeed in the, in the end. Less so with general licensing uh, as a matter of sort of course, but thinking more in terms of the big larger DSPs, and frankly, I'm not worried about the largest of the DSPs because those are the only folks that can afford the litigation risk and potentially the two-year licensing process and so forth. But for the little guys, for entrepreneurs, for startups, anybody that wants to innovate in music, doesn't this mean that you know somebody, labels, publishers, somebody has to start taking less money? Because the performing rights money, the percentages are going up. Yes, and especially, and I'll just as intro it, and then we can mm -hmm. jump into the panel. From a general licensing standpoint, um, uh, the rights holders that license two businesses, venues, uh, hospitals, uh, entertainment centers, whatever, um, the potential marketplace is is over a billion dollars, just probably in North America, um, from the standpoint of all of the venues that are not serviced today. Um, right now, I th and Aaron has an interesting uh, infographic on his site up, which shows around $250 million of general licensing value just between uh, a couple of the PROs. You add all the PROs together, and you add Canada in there, and you add Australia, and then you add et cetera. The, the marketplace for general licensing music is quite high. And it's not an efficient marketplace, as you were pointing out. We're not realizing the value from that market. Um, we're only, and part of the reason is because it can cost from, I probably shouldn't say for confidentiality reasons, but, but for every dollar made for general licensing purposes, a good percentage, fairly high percentage of that compared to the operating costs of the PRO goes into securing that, those dollars. If we can make that efficient, we can lower the cost for both the, uh, the rights, the people that are looking to license music, as well as create more value for other suppliers in the marketplace or even the rights holders. Maybe, maybe uh, collectively they take uh, the same amount of money or more because we're actually lowering or raising the efficiency of the marketplace. All these, all these economic levers are, are what we're paying attention to. All of the economic levers from cost, from availability to uh, timeliness to ease, you know, et cetera. And so please over to the panel. Yeah, I think you touched on one of the big issues, which is the fact that there's not as much money flowing in from venture capital into the music industry as there should be. And, and you mentioned one of the big reasons, right, is the cost of licensing, but the other half of it is, is litigation risk yes. because it's so complicated to get licenses. I mean, I, part of my practice is working with startups, some, some of whom are in the music industry or want to be. And I mean, I've literally had folks leave my office say like, you know, I just don't think we can do this because they don't understand the complexity and the risk is just too high. And that's a major loss for the music industry as a whole. Um, so I think that's, that's something that we really have to pay attention to because um, it's, it's, you know, there's such a great opportunity and, you know, uh, yeah, okay, maybe the license fees go up, but if you have more transparency and certainty and you can eliminate the litigation risk, then the problem might not be as stark as what you're talking about. But it's definitely a good point and something that has to be, you know, has to stay on the table because there's a lot of dollars that aren't flowing into the industry uh, that should be. So, so Jim couldn't mention the, <laughs> the breakdowns, but I, I'm not handcuffed like you. So, <laughs> uh, performing rights organizations uh, typically have between 30 and 50% overhead when it comes to collecting general licenses in a, any given year. So that's a lot of money when you think about there being basically $300 million collected in the US 
every single year just from real world businesses. Someone has to go shake down those bars. Yeah, yeah. and uh, you know, litigation is expensive. No offense to the lawyers on the panel. Um, but yeah, I, I think I'm out there in, in the trenches talking to these businesses and venues that license music. And, and one of the things I keep hearing over and over again is they would love to know that their music license fees fall within a certain percentage. So regardless of how, you know, if, if they have a bad couple concerts, a bad month or something like that, then their their music license fees fall in line with the revenue that they've generated. So there, there is a real tie between the, uh, the music that they're using and the value that is created by that music. Um, and I think that's something that, I think Canada does that, correct? The, uh, for the, uh, the in, in terms of a percentage yeah, uh, charge uh, of, yeah. of the business's revenue for a license? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. The, uh, uh, it is a problem uh, uh, how these things get managed, but I see the real opportunity on and increasing the size of the pie and lowering the cost to, to run it. And, uh, you know, in the last few years, SOCAN's taken our overhead rate from 15% down to 9 uh, We did it to be, you know, good guys and all the rest of it, but also to allow us to uh, build our own stability so that the barrier to entry of someone else would be that much higher. And we didn't charge more. We just were able to give another extra 6% into the genes of the rights holders. And that turns into a game changer and opens up other doors. I think more people have to think of it that way. But uh, exactly to your point, I, I don't know you, but I'm looking forward to talking to you more because I think that's not a widespread thought process, what I just described. Um, uh, but I think there has to be predictability. And we're doing a lot of stuff around experimental licensing and long-term agreements to provide that, especially for startups and for new people. Let's start collecting data and see what the actual usage looks like and how we can form these different things together to make better deals that make sense for everybody. And, and, a, In and, terms a, vision, of and a vision, sorry, a vision real quick for, for that Jeff has with SOCAN, and I, and I know that GMR and others do as well, it's, it's about implementing it, is we must create a more digital or electronic marketplace to let this happen. Yeah. We can't employ all of the people necessary as we do in the current models to go call upon a bar or restaurant or a retail outlet. If they could be invited into a very simple to use digital marketplace bringing buyers and sellers and suppliers together, that's the vision and that's what we have with what we're trying to do. Yes, Annie? Um, I think in terms of uh, uh, mechanical rights space and the sink space, um, the point that you raised is very much relevant. There's, there are high administrative costs in, um, in licensing in the space, and there's, of course, um, there's a, sometimes there's a reluctance on the part of rights holders to buy into a particular startup or platform right. um, because the overhead in providing the rights or providing the content or whatever it is um, just really uh, outweighs the, the benefit. And so I think that by reducing the overhead that's involved in getting the funds to the rights holders and, and you know, hearkening back to what we mentioned earlier in this panel, building up accountability and perhaps using technology to, um, to do that um, and to provide more accountability, um, we can get rights holders and the makers of products and tech, tech products and services um, on a more even, comfortable playing field to transact. Okay, um, we are about out of time. Um, we do have, we would invite you to Suite 2103 if you have more questions to ask us. Uh, we'll, uh, many of us will be on in that room later today. I know that coincides with another uh, uh, reception, but um, 
any final Will there touch? be drinks and snacks up there, Jim? <laughs> oh, are we going really good ones to help. In t- yeah. <laughs> yes, we're hoping so. The, the hotel is having some issues with dealing with everybody's interest, but I'm trying my best. And if not, I will be going down the street to find something. I want sake. Yeah, sake. With, that yes. seems appropriate. It seems yes. appropriate. Um, thank you very much for today. Uh, we appreciate, appreciate your time. Uh, good luck with the rest of the conference. Thank you.